0: He's been called the grandfather of gamification. He's the best-selling author of The Game of Work and scorekeeping for success. And I'm calling him the owner, the general manager, and the MVP head coach of The Game of Work. His name is Chuck Coonrod, a legend, and he's in a class all of his own. I'm Mark Gandy. This is a Bookshelf, and this is going to be fun. I love the book, The Game of Work. I've read it multiple times. And when you read Chuck's content, you can easily tell he loves sports.
1: Well, um, you know, I was raised, um, it's, it's interesting, there's a great book that's out of print called Is a Life After High School. And in the book, the author's uh, uh, research and contention says there's there's three classes in high school. They're the in-crowd kids that are all sort of flushed out and cute and six foot four when they're 12, you know, and they're the in-crowd. And then there's a wannabe in-crowd. That's the next group. And he said the wannabe in-crowd are the folks that learn disappointment and embarrassment and all the stuff, all the life skills you need. Um, And I was in that group. So uh, as a participant, you know, I played. Uh, I played football. I tried to wrestle for a little while. Um, played football at a junior at a small college level. My freshman year, tried to walk on at Michigan State. But I've always been um, an aficionado. The the appeal, and of course, when I had my epiphany, um, that sort of melded the the idea and where our, where our tongue twister came from, which is why are, why will people pay for the privilege of working harder than they'll work if you pay them? Um, that just started uh, drawing me in. But I've always been kind of a uh, behavioral sports, behavioral buff, if you will, what what drives, what makes, what makes the difference, um, what is the slight edge difference in sports. So, yeah, I'm I'm a I guess you could call me a sports nerd. Um. I I cannot say enough
0: about the game of work. Now, there you have four books, and I call it the yellow book and the blue book. I always recommend uh, readers get the game of work if I don't give it to them ahead of time. We were joking before we hit record that I give a lot of potential clients the game of work, and sometimes they don't call back. <laughs> it's like... The book is so good that I can implement this stuff, and you're laughing. So I want to know the origin story. Again, the game of work is outstanding. Uh, I'm going to guess that half the people listening have have read the book, um, but it's just a great way of scorekeeping in any facet of the business. But where did this all come from?
1: How does this? How did you get started? Well, we we started in '73. And we're actually a franchisee for a company called Success Motivation Institute in Waco, Texas, which was founded by one of my greatest mentors, Paul J. Meyer. And so we got, I got affiliated with them as a client in about 1971. And when we started the company in 73, it was to be one of their franchisees. And so Paul's concept about goal setting and steps to the goal And how you dial and deal with that is very fundamental and foundational in my life and and in the work that we've done. So we were out and we had a box, a little box. They had two binders in it and and, uh, eight cassette tapes. And uh, you listen to the cassette tapes uh, once a day, every day for a week. And then you got together in a meeting, kind of like Sunday school. And we provided a facilitator and that's where we got started. Um, and it was in uh, one of those sales calls where, uh, again, and, and and this story is, is a combination of events that, that comes together. Uh, and I'm calling on this. I'm going to call him a redneck because uh, he was mid-50s, mid-career, and not happy about either. And uh, – He's given me the kids today lecture, kids can't work, kids don't care, kids don't have the same values you and I have. And most of us have heard that at some point in our life. But many of us had a seminal day when we first gave the lecture, because like the Geico commercial, we just became our father. Uh, So anyway, I'm getting all of this. And he's going, what are you and your magic about that? And that, as he takes me over to the window in his second-story office, are 8 20-something side in the house on a factory-built home floor. And to describe their workplace, you need words like arthritic snails and wet cement. And he said, what are you going to do about that? So any of us who have been in selling know that if you get an opposite, an objection you don't have an answer to, the clock kind of stops, which is what happened to me. And then I got rescued by lunch. And the lunch bell goes off. These eight guys drop these hammers like they're electrified. They take off like somebody hit them with a high-voltage cattle prod. And they run like 50 yards down the factory floor to where they find a basketball hoop. And while they're running, four of them are taking their shirts off. So they get down to the classic half-court shirts and skins basketball game on the factory floor. And they are just electrified. They're charged. No strap plan, no KPI, no, nothing's going on. Everybody knows the rules, and um, they play for 42 minutes. No clock that I can see. 12.42, they pick up their Cokes, big customer of ours, and their sack lunches and start walking back to where at 1 o'clock they're back on the job, arthritic snails and wet cement. And I just saw that. It was my epiphany. It was an hour of my going. You know, it's like a tennis match. What? What? Who? And so that kind of initiated this inquiry, this inquisition or inquiring about what made the difference. Why is it that people would pay for the privilege? I mean, these guys are playing on their own time way harder in terms of calorie burn than they are back here. And so that, hook, if you will, became the cornerstone of what we what we put together in the game of work.
0: Chuck, you've been called the grandfather of gamification. Are you good with that?
1: Well, the interesting thing is, is that just in terms of the timeline, is that I started doing this in 1973. Our book came out in 1984, and in 2004, some whiz kids from Silicon Valley and the University of Berkeley claimed to have invented a concept called gamification. Um, So uh, Ken Krogh, who's a a big fan, a big friend of mine, and who runs this company called Inside Sales, which is a fabulous organization, and they do amazing research. Um, Ken is tasked as a Forbes contributor with doing an article on gamification. And I think the date on that is... 2014 or something like that. I didn't know anything about it. Ken just called me up, said, I need to do an article, asked me like two questions because he was knew the book, familiar with the stuff. And then he writes this beautiful article for Forbes and, and hangs this moniker on me, Grandfather Gamification. And his, his whole premise in the article is that these kids in 2004 had no sense of what went before and so actually if you look up gamification wikipedia you'll look you'll find me mentioned um as the forerunner i you i usually do my homework very well i did not know that well so that's uh that that's been kind of fun and and i've been you know really pretty much retired since about 2011 i have a couple of clients that won't say that won't stop sending money and so I a moral obligation to serve and uh, but uh, but that was that was the genesis of the of a moniker looking back
0: looking back what's been one of your favorite stories of all time and it may be in the book like we were talking about one a few minutes ago but it, do you have a favorite story or is that like trying to pick your you know a, a favorite niece
1: nephew uh, what I have a favorite story, and it has nothing to do with work. but one of the one of the true supporters of the game of work uh, is a gentleman by the name of Ron Hammond. And this story goes back to roughly the year two thousand. and it involves his son, Chase. And Chase is an incredibly bright kid. In fact, Chase today is now married father of one, and in flight training and a graduate of the United States Force Academy. I'm not going to take credit for all of that, but here's my favorite story. Chase is in kindergarten, and Ron and, and Anne-Marie get a call from the teacher. Chase is disruptive, going to be a problem. You need to come down, and we need to talk about it. I don't know why I'm so... But this is just favorite. Um, so... They go down talk to the teacher. She, Ron's very specific because he's a just you know he's more than a disciple. He's the next level of game work supporter like yourself. And so he goes, well, what do you want Chase to do? You know, so she's got a couple of stops and she's got some things she wants to. Do. So they make a list. They go home and they get five more things that Chase needs to do around the house, small chores, and. They build a scorecard. So <clears throat> God, this is crazy, Mark. So anyway, so first that here's the deal. So he's got 10 things he has to do. Right? If he gets eight of those things done, he gets 15 minutes of uninterrupted time with his dad, who is an incredibly busy executive. If he gets 40 out of the 50 for the week, he gets two hours or an afternoon of things that he that he gets to specify. And he also gets little trinkets and stuff like you do at the T-Ball or the arcade. <clears throat> so here's the drill. Thursday of the next week, four days, teacher calls.
0: <clears throat>
1: what have you done to this kid? She thinks they beat him. <clears throat> so... I said, what do you mean? He he's doing all the things I asked that I told you I needed him to do in class. And he's doing some other stuff and he's interfaced with a couple of kids that are rowdy and he's got that salt. What'd you do? Ron goes back down to the teacher, shows her the scorecard, talks about the payoffs, the rest of it, and she doesn't believe him. She goes, What'd you do to the kid? So that's my favorite. Game of Work Story with all of the principles of the Game of Work built in.
0: One of the principles is more frequent feedback, and then here's my favorite: higher degree a personal, well, higher degree a personal choice of methods. It's almost like the the scorekeeping tool is not about the coach; it's about the player, the student. They're getting as much out of it, and and that's what happened to that to that, that young person, and it, it, a beautiful story. And I hope that teacher is now a believer, or, or became a believer. And scorecards.
1: I do know, I do know that our country is a lot safer because Jason's in here.
0: We'll be right back. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I want to talk about the game of work for the next few minutes for the rest of our time. And we've already have had a couple of uh, We'll call them global thought leaders in in OKRs. And again, this is not about the game of work versus OKRs. I just want to let you know that when I finished reading this book for about the sixth or seventh time uh, this past weekend, and I may have read it even more times than that, Chuck, but it's like for a lot of people who spend a lot of money on OKRs, it's like you don't necessarily and and by the way, this may be sacrilegious. You don't necessarily need to read or study those systems. The game of work. Will work. You can pick this up and start using it right now. A hundred million dollar company can use this. Uh, a Fortune five hundred, and you're nodding, so you're validating. And a startup, uh, it does not need a mastermind. Now I'm sure a coach like you is going to be a big help, but you do not need this this massive system to implement these principles and tools. And that's not really that's we're not supposed to ask yes no questions, but. I'm going to let you respond.
1: I'm going to tell you another quick story. Um, We have a company in Utah that I won't identify because uh, then I can give you some specifics. But they have a guy who's a night foreman, night supervisor or something. something, Walks by a bookstore, 1980, right after the book came out, 84, 85. Says to his wife, buy me that for my birthday. So he takes the book reads the book, finds one scorecard that he thinks is important in his business, and it's the difference between engineered labor and actual labor spent in building a trailer. Okay, big 18-wheeler going down the road. So he gets it, starts posting by hand, okay, no Excel, just writing it on, you know, kind of like Schwab on the floor, but on the wall, here's where we are. And uh, for his shift, well, the productivity of shift rises so dramatically they promote him. So now he's the day shift guy. Not too long after that, he becomes a plant manager. That plant out of the five plants this company has is 27 percent or more more productive than the rest of the plants. We wind up doing the install my plants. You know what they spent to get that? And I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars over a 20 year period of time, 1495, because that's what the book was when it first came out. Now, if that's not ROI, I don't know what it's. So yeah, you don't need anything with this, but let me, let me do some Mark, let's do some secret sauce. Okay. okay. And, and what's, what really makes the game of work work and why people need to get involved. Uh, a lot of people that are in the measurement business and I'm not taking shots at anybody. Uh, there's a lot of great work there. Um, the OKR concept and the rest of it, but I'm going to come back and and I often get asked what's wrong with my gamification or somebody calls up and says, we just got through spending tons of money with blah, blah, blah. And we didn't get traction and we didn't get by, you know, what's wrong. So here's some of the secret sauce. Too many times, this this concept of measurement, which in by and of itself is a non-human word. It's a really offensive word to people. Nobody likes to be measured. Uh, measurement is fundamentally negative. We're conditioned for it. We get bad grades in school. We're too short. I'm too flat. I'm too fat. I'm too, okay, all bad crap. So when you write a book that has measurement in the title of it, or you have a program of measurement in the title of it, you're already swimming upstream. Right. So, So the approach, we're going to look down on the people in an organization like the rats in a maze. And we're going to send little zingers down like leaderboards and OKRs and KFIs and crap. Oh, no, that's not right. And we're going to see if we can get the rats to run faster. And and we miss the fundamental scenario that we're not dealing with rats. We're dealing with human beings, and they have desires and needs and the rest of it. So we said, how do we make this thing work so that people get more engaged? And, and I'm going to be as straightforward as I can. I'm not selling anything. Um, I'm not even selling a concept. But what we did is there's nothing new in the game of work. I'm, I'm not a discoverer. I'm an assembler of anything else. And I'm an observer. Now I'm going to tell you what we learned. You know, John Wooden said, it's what you learn after you think you know it all. And here's my, after I knew it all. And that is that the number one principle in the motivation of recreation is feedback. And and when we wrote the book, honestly, we sort of threw it in. Um, But now I recognize, and if you would reorder them, I would say that the number one Uh, differentiation, and the number one reason that people pay for the privilege of working harder than they'll work when they're paid, is that the feedback is not only more frequent, but it's better. So so we talk about, and I'm going to open a crack a little bit here, and I don't think anybody will steal it, but so we talk about the game of work creates, and you won't find this in the book, but it creates a culture of appropriate feedback. And so the purpose of the scorecard, and when I want to talk about scorecards versus all the other terminology, but the purpose of the scorecard is for a coach and a player to decide when, what kind, and how much feedback is appropriate. Now, <clears throat> I've laughingly told hundreds of thousands of people and audiences that my goal in my whole life, I was on a quest for one thing, and that was an overappreciated employee. And in four decades of doing this, I never found one. I never found anybody in an organization anywhere that felt they were emotionally rewarded effectively or appropriately for the level of service they rendered. Now, that's a huge indictment. It's sad. So it's sad. So the point is that The game of work works so well because it attacks or provides the antithesis to all the stupid stuff we do in business. Okay, so think about feedback for a minute. Um, Here's the other tweak on that. The denial or the withholding of feedback is the most severe form of punishment you can inflict on a human being. Now, we talked about chasing the academy, but in the academies, just historically, no longer, I think, the practice, we had the silent treatment and used it as discipline. We had cadets that dropped out, a couple of documented suicides, solitary confinements, the worst form of imprisonment, because there's none of the feedback. If you go back to the incarceration in Korea and Vietnam, um, the first step in brainwashing is isolation, denial of feedback, upsetting your own body feedback. So we know that the denial of withholding of feedback is worse for except in business where it's standard operating procedure. You know, so you work a 2,000-hour year or twenty forty whatever that number is, but you work a 2,000-hour year. And feedback in too many organizations, it's 40 minutes at forced on you by forced on your boss by HR at the end of the year. And he or she's trying to figure out what it was that didn't talk to you about when they should. You know, and if that is such a good system, I would challenge everybody who is in a close personal relationship that the next time their significant other asks how was that meal I just made? Or how was that time we just had together? Your response is, let me get back to you in writing on our anniversary, and we'll get this properly documented.
0: And point very well taken. Uh, and I, may, I may be turning three shades of red. I, I have some things I may need to work on after this conversation.
1: Go. I was just going to say, so from, from our standpoint, that's where we come from. We come from how do I help people define for themselves what they're doing that's important that we're not recognizing and or rewarding or maybe even paying attention to. And when we get that, we say, okay, fine. Now, that's what it is. How do we monetize it? How do we numeralize it? How do we digitize it? How do we get a number on it? And how do you want to report it? And then the most important thing has nothing to do with the scorecard. I come back to them. But the most important thing is, can you get the leader, the coach, the person to whom the player reports to have the proper dialogue driven by the scorecard? Almost every
0: sport, my favorite sport, baseball. So we don't have goals. I mean, I want to say physical goals, but every other sport, football, hockey, soccer. And so I lifted a line out of your your book, take out the goals of any sport, no one's going to play, right? And I just thought that was so ingenious to say, And but yet in business, why are the goals hidden or
1: missing? Let me ask you a question. If there are no goals in baseball, what are those square white things laying all over the field?
0: My 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 First comment.
1: Base, base, third base, home plate.
0: My comment to that is is I'm still young enough to remember t-ball, and we were not allowed. There was there was no scoreboard, no no scorekeeping uh, for t-ball because that could hurt. Uh, that that could hurt self-esteem of the children. But you look in the stands. What is every mother doing with a piece of paper and pencil? They're they're keeping they're keeping tally of what Johnny did or what Sarah did.
1: Well, it's even even if the parents aren't there because the T-ball fraud is you're supposed to tell the kid you had a great game and you tied, right? So you say to a four-year-old you had a great game and they tied, and the four-year-old says, Crap, we kicked our butt six three. What are you talking about, tied? Exactly. So, right. So I think this idea that, that you can create whether it with Chase and the teacher, or building trailers, or um, you know, you mentioned one of my other favorite stories is the is the uh, the weighing the freight bills. Could you and, please uh, explain
0: that story? I just
1: it, well, it's a great this is, story. This is, this is this is early, way way early on in my career, and, and it's like your uh, second or third client, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this is back in the seventies and we're, we're, we're stumbling around and we're working on principles. And, and one of the things that we figured out down the road is that everybody every day wants to know whether they won or lost. I mean, that's, that's the appeal of being able to go to uh, a golf course or a tennis court or whatever is that you walk away from that with some sense of investment of your time. So if you say everybody coming to work wants to know how to succeed, and if they can't find the answer because our mind is binary, they default to must be no way to win, okay? Now, if there's no way to win, and my favorite example is you're in a Scotch foursome on the, on the first tee of a golf course and you're playing in a charity event and you didn't put your foursome together and the first, your first player hits it out of bounds the second one puts it in water, and the third one says something like, should I hit it again or put it back on the tee? And and you pretty quickly decide there's no way to win. There's there's only one strategy for the rest of the four hours. Where is the refreshment cart? Okay. I mean, that's it. But the problem is, is that if you get there's no way to win, you quickly default to why try, and why try takes you to quit, and then you either quit and leave or you quit and stay. So, so that that's been a big part of our construct is that if if I can figure out how, how everybody gets to walk out and as they punch out or sometime at the end of the day say, great day I got a day I can tell my six year old that, that I did well today or I got a day that I can tell my significant other that that went well. So we've been focused on that. So we're in this deal, and and this is I mean this is. 1973, you know, xl one or uh, Lotus one, two, three came out in 85. I thought that I had, you know, we could now close the patent office because we have now invented everything necessary. But in seven, you know, in 73, we're drawing graph paper and charts and rulers and four digit calculators, four function calculators. So they're way behind in processing that. Somebody says, well, do you want us to count them? You no, know, and that's, that's a very normal response that I did. You want us to count them or do you want us to do the work? So <laughs> we came up with somebody said, well, why don't we? And, and we actually talked about stacking them up and putting a ruler next to them and doing the deal. And somebody said, well, why don't we just weigh them? I was not that person. Somebody in the crowd, as we're talking about principles, why don't we just weigh them? So we did. So. At the end of the day, <clears throat> they weighed the amount of bills that were unprocessed. Now, it's a little negative, and I don't really like that, but it gave us the opportunity to say, this is how many bills we're processing per person hour, which nobody had ever thought about. We just knew the stack never came down, and we, never, we couldn't win. And no matter how hard we worked, we were only going to be talking about the remaining stack. So no, absolute no win deal. So we started to, to weigh them. And then we started to talk about bills process per person hour because we had some unit to wait a minute. And we started to poke it out. Well, they were looking, for over, they were looking to hire part-time help to, to work on the backlog. I, I don't want to use the four-day cycle that I did with Chase, but it wasn't more than 10 working days. And the pile is gone. Okay? And instead of hiring somebody, they decided that they would take the new the budget that they'd already uh, allocated for the new person and spread it out over the nine people that were in the department, and everybody got a bonus. And, you know. I I had so,
0: to go back and re-, re I had to go back and reread that because it started out at twenty two ounces per person hour. And then within one, soon it got to be 33 days or 33 ounces. And then you'd mentioned they were behind. They had never been caught up. I mean, never. And then all of a sudden they're one day behind. Then they get to 45 ounces, then 54, and then 72 ounces. How
1: crazy is that? It's a great story. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's and, and, and and from my standpoint, and this is probably the thing that's been so, emotionally, you know, this is my psychic income, Mark, is that you now have nine or 10 people and all of the people that have followed him for 50 years almost, um, who now are able to say, I know what a good day's work is. You know, back in 1870s something or other, um, some scientists, and I forget it, I'll try to research it to sanitary, but one of the original management scientists said our biggest job is to figure out what is a fair day's work. We don't have to worry about a fair day's pay because we got HR and we got surveys and we got all of that like we'll be gone where everybody's got to be above average or we're not making any headway. <laughs> you know, that sort of self perpetuates. But, but getting back and defining what is a fair day's work, what is, and, and I'm going to back up a little bit and say, what is an emotionally satisfying Good investment one. of eight hours. That's a win-win deal. I mean, that's, that is, that is, that is win-win before win-win was win-winning. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a core respect for the people that you, uh, you get to check, you get
0: to work with. There is a concept in the book and the, it's not theoretical. You actually lay out I think it's, again, it's genius. It's called the field of play. I absolutely love it. Is it fair to say 20, 30 years later, since you first came up with that concept, you're still teaching it? I mean, and people are still using it. Are they getting a lot of benefit out of it? You may want to first explain what is the field of play.
1: Yeah. We got, let me back up. There's even a more fundamental thing, and that is that the the, the joy any of us take. Um, out of any experience is the degree to which it meets or exceeds the expectations held for it. Okay. So quick example, somebody says to you, you, if you're ever in Dallas, you got to go to, and we won't even name a restaurant, but I've been there. I've been there a hundred times. The waiters are fabulous. The the meal, it's the ambiance that you got to go. We all got goddess, right? got to use this shotgun. You got to ski on these. You got to go. So you do. 10 years later, you're in Dallas and you make, you call the restaurant and make reservations and your significant other. And you go there. Well, turns out ownership has changed. The chef I remember has been replaced by the guy from MASH. Um, That's a, that's a dated deal, but you know, And it's terrible. And the the waiters are rude and the whole nine yards. Well, you're really disappointed, but your disappointment is magnified by the fact that I set the expectations so high. So the field of play originally came out of uh, another one of our early clients um, was a a gentleman who owned multiple McDonald's restaurants. And he had his, his managers uh, were, you know, 20 something kids and and they used to be fry cooks or whatever. And most that's the way you work your way up, but it was kind of a, um, a culture of fear in the organization. And so we're in a setting and we're in our typical weekly Sunday school kind of meeting and we're having a conversation with the guys and, One of them said, uh, we're afraid or the word fear or something popped up. And I said, what are you afraid of? So I'm afraid of getting fired. I said, wow, that's interesting. I said, what can you be fired for? Said, I don't know, but I'm afraid of being fired. So I'm looking at the owner. Carl is his name, dear friend. I'm looking at the owner and, uh, He's like, you know, the red on my cup. And so I'm kind of going, I'm not cool. Let's let's work. So we came back. We got and I got together after the meeting and I said, what can they be fired for? He said, I can't believe they don't know that. Okay. Let's not make it about the mice. Let's go figure out what, you know, so we listed like eight or nine things from McComco, McDonald's court, and from Carl's company that were terminal offenses. Wrote them down, come back to the next meeting, hand them out, read them. One kid might not have been the same kid, but another kid puts his hand up. He said, well, I'm not doing any of these. And then Carl looked at him and he said, then you got nothing to be afraid of. And that clicked in terms of the deal. So that's where the terminal out-of-bounds came from. And then we got an operational out-of-bounds that refers to, like, dress codes. And, you know, now you have to remember, this stuff was written in 1980, 82. And, and now we've gone through the Me Too, and now we're on ESG and inclusion and diversity. And you know what? Gen, Gen C kids love this stuff just love it because what they want is recognition without a lot of close supervision and some flexibility.
0: And what if you're in a business where there's a lot of negativity and I'm talking the kind of negativity where profits are sagging, really it's, it's out of the control of maybe the, the ownership, the leadership team uh, competition. So let's say you've got some, some negativity scorekeeping on a sinking ship is just as critical as, as it is in any environment, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh,
1: agree? Well, here's, here's the issue. See, for a long time, we've, we've talked about be your best. Well, that's dumb. I mean, that's just flat. That's failure enhanced. Because when you say do your best, there's never a period. There's always a comma at the time among your peers. Da, 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 da. So right away, we, we undermine it, and we mitigate it. So then we said, well, that was stupid. So now we're going to go, we're going to be better than complete the work. And this is where my friend Tony Beresford in England, who's got Rise, and Tony and I go about this all the time, he said, Tony, the leaderboard only matters to the top three people. You're doing nothing for, and, and they don't need it because they bug each other's cell phones to know how their production is so they can kick each, you know, I mean, these people are piranhas. They need, you know, it's like teaching piranhas to eat unnecessary effort. So, so you have to look. So then the real element, the only place that you can win is to be better than you used to be. So if you're in a negative environment, and unfortunately, you, and this is the person I feel I wish I had a better answer for, but it's the individual who buys the book and goes back to a negative environment and and it just gets, you know, vilified uh, for trying to fix it. So we've got a lot of what people refer to as closet scorekeepers. There, there are people out there that are in that negative environment. Their coach couldn't give them a compliment if they if they doubled the business overnight, just genetically incapable. And, and they're still keeping track because I'm in this deal. I don't have a better job prospect right now, but that doesn't mean that I have to sell out or that I have to buy in. Your do
0: your best comment reminds me of something Winston Churchill once said, I paraphrase, It's not enough to do our best. We have to do what's required, and that's during the time of the the bombing uh, during World War II. Uh, Last question, somewhat related to the book, and we talked a little bit about this before we hit record. Uh, Dean Spitzer, who's written a book, he has the word measurement in it, but I think if you two were to talk, I think you two would enjoy each other's. A company. Dean has one chapter. He didn't spend a lot of time on it, but he talked about the dark side uh, of, of measurement. As we start playing the game of work, is it ever possible that we could be measuring or counting? Oh, I use the word measuring. Is it possible that we could be scoring the wrong things?
1: What, what are your thoughts on that? We try to build sort of an inverted triangle. And then one of the upper points of the triangle is a And the other upper point of the triangle is the coach. And at the bottom of the triangle is the game of work, either um, a game of work uh, facilitator or just reading the book or scorekeeping for success. And so we say, let's go figure out how do we win. And the coach is responsible for making sure that the scorecard fits into his or her hierarchy of responsibility. The player's responsibility is to make sure it's germane to what the job is. Okay, And our responsibility is to make sure that it fits all the criteria of good scorekeeping. And and one of the things that we frankly admit going into is there is no perfect scorecard. And so uh, this idea that we're going to get the absolute Balance scorecard, OKR, KPI, blah blah blah. That that fits into this hierarchy and it all cascades. Although we do build um, that hierarchy and making sure that in every organizational chart, the scorecards between every level or each level are outlined. It takes a lot of wall space, but again, to the point of everybody understanding what they're doing. Now. There are lots of examples of where, you know, first off, what, what gets measured gets done. We know that. And we also know that specificity or specifics will trump ambiguity. So if you're in a situation and, you know, one of the great, one of the great uh, attacks on, on this whole concept of, of measurement or scorekeeping or feedback is the Wells Fargo fiasco um, because one of the things you have to do with the game, with the field of play is that if Wells Fargo had put the field of play in place, what they were doing were terminal offenses that, that had little, if any mitigation by the scorecard itself. Great point. Great point. Okay, and, I mean, it's, because one of the things, one of the points of motivation recreation, is they don't change the rules on you in the middle of the game. That coaching is consistent. Okay, you know you can't you can't cork the bat, Sammy. Um, you know you can't you can't you can't file square grooves in your wedge on the PGA tour, um, or
0: or shoot up, <laughs> shoot up.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean you can't do. Uh, all of the, all of those kind of, So you, so you have these boundaries. I mean, you can't run outside the baseline, right? I mean, there's some certain situations about that. So, you know, we all know where a foul ball goes. Right? So every recreational pursuit we have has the guidelines built into the process. Now, once we have that out of the way, then I can go work on, um, how to make the game better. And, you know, if there was, if there ever was an, a second gospel uh, to the game of work, it's probably Moneyball, Mr. Baseball. Um, right. Because what they said is, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, we're looking at the wrong stuff here. Let's go look at the right stuff. Let's, as, as the father of behavioralism said, let's reinforce the behavior we want repeated. And
0: what, I want to ask you about coaching. So, of the five principles, principle number 5 is consistent coaching. And I'm not trying to lead the witness, but in your <laughs> coaching, in your coaching over the last 30-40 years, can anyone be a coach? And I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this question, but can anyone be a coach? Can anyone be coached to be a coach?
1: I believe there's more innate coaching ability in people than, than they are willing to admit. Okay, so so let's start there. I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is we start to, to formalize coaching. And by that, I mean uh, 30 minutes a month, one-on-one, review my scorecards, talk to me about what needs to be improved, celebrate the crap out of what I'm doing right, so, so, so you can kind of give the little two the little card, you know, the little cheat sheet to anybody in a coaching role and responsibility. Now, I will tell you this, that the game of work works every time you use it. Where it really is spectacular is where you have a coach or coaches or a coaching group that cares about their people. And when you do that, when you sit down and say, you know, I was at Michigan State in in the 60s and we had a pretty good football team. Um, I did not, I tried to walk on. uh, That's a long story, but didn't make it, but obviously big fan. And, uh, And we won, you know, we maybe lost one or two games a year. And it was one of those times, now this is 1965 maybe, and Duffy Doherty, who was a great coach and, and a, but a little Irish guy and everything you imagine, he looked at the paper one time and he said, I don't get it. He said, every time we win, you guys call it a team victory. And every time we lose, you think it's my fault. Now, you know, all of the great work that's been done with servant leadership, um, going literally back to the Savior, um, all of that. If you get a coach that operates out of that principle, that I'm here to set my ego aside for the value and the benefit of the team, it doesn't get any better than that. It just... It just doesn't get any better than that. So it it all starts out with, those are my people. I need to be responsible for them. I need to see if I can't bring satisfaction, enjoyment, feedback, um, and appreciation to the workforce. And if, if I start with that, who can't coach? I mean, you know, who can't parent? All I'm, don't, as well as we can, I don't, because we're all
0: who can. I'm visualizing this supervisor in a large warehouse where maybe that supervisor may only be working, and this is in the Midwest, maybe $17, $18 an hour. you know, Can that person be a coach? And I'm just thinking, think of all the tacit knowledge they have that the new people who are coming on board in droves, I mean, that they can't learn on a YouTube video of, and so that's where I that's where that question came from. Is I I wonder well, going through the game of work, am, are some of the managers, the coaches, doing a good job at teaching others to be coaches?
1: And you know, here's a here's the thing that's really fun, is that you watch some of those people that on the job, we, for whatever let's let's just say the culture doesn't encourage what we've been talking about. And so on the job, I go to somebody and say, hey. What about Charlie? You know, Charlie does a good job, but I'm not a leader. Okay. You ever figure out what Charlie does when he's not here? No, no. Let's, let's go ask or let's go find out. Let's go follow Charlie after work. And you find out that here's Charlie and nine 12 year olds in baseball, soccer, Hockey feel I don't care where it is. And Charlie's got these guys and gals moving in the right direction, doing their job, clear expectations. <laughs> go, you, know, you go, why? Well, probably because we're not giving Charlie permission to do that. And, oh, by the way, we're also not treating Charlie like Charlie deserves to be treated. You know when when you believe in people, and and you see that people enjoy feedback, they enjoy consistency. And the scorecard drives consistency.
0: This is obviously CFO bookshelf. We ask every author this question. It's one of my favorite questions. What are some of your your favorite books? And it doesn't have to be business books. Uh, we we get really some interesting titles, and of course on our zoom call, I can see books behind you, but are are there some favorites that you have? You have books that you like to gift?
1: Uh, one is good to great by Jim Collins, which I consider to be the best business book written in my lifetime. And the reason for it is what Jim did is he went out and did the research. Okay. I mean, and, and, if you look at everything else, everything else on the manager's bookshelf, on your, your recommendation, or other author, it's, it's got a guy or a gal. It's got our ego in it. It's got our what we think about where we are and the rest of it. But Jim said, and he doesn't do seminars. For, I read the book. I called I called Boulder and I said, OK, uh, sign me up. They go, sign you up for what? I said, I want to come and sit at the feet of the master and be taught all the stuff that he's learned. So we don't do that. Well, what do you mean you don't do that? Give me the rights to do that. I'll do that. Um, so I I think good to great. I just finished reading Bob Iger's book, Ride of a Lifetime. That is a um, great book. Great book. And uh and his principles in the I mean the introduction. The introduction in that book is a great book. Period. Um and 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 then as you go through it and the way he recaps it at the end, you know, just great, almost textbook kinds of material. Stories are great, phenomenal career, obviously a great leader, but stuff, meat, real good meat. Um, I just finished reading A Game Plan for Life by John Wooden. I've had it for 10 years, and uh, these were vacation reads. And then one that um, that is not business related, but again, almost like Moneyball, is a, is a validation of the game of work. And another principle is the vote is uh, boys in the boat. The boys in the boat. Love
0: that book. And, Loved it. Uh,
1: and you know, what you again? You talk about raw talent. You talk about overcoming adversity. You talk about. What was going on generally in the world, and it 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 changed my view of the world at that time. Reading that book, even though I didn't live through all of it, I didn't live live through any of it actually. I was born after the book, after the gold medal, but um, but had been told about it, you know. And uh, then trying to uh, to bring that to 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 light and to visit. Really impactful, really impactful.
0: So you've written four books, including, again, The Game of Work and Scorekeeping for Success. And I just bought this weekend, The Better People Leader. And that is a nice, quick read. I'm about halfway through it. And then Managing the Obvious is another book. And that one, I think, is out of print. I went ahead and bought the physical copy and uh, looking forward
1: to, to getting it. That,
0: and that, we can still... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You should
1: have called me first. Uh, you know, you should have called I, me first. That's the, every, poorest, that's the poorest seller we have. We have a storage unit full of a Mark. So if you want to start I, giving it away, I'll send them to you.
0: I'm sorry. But every time authors say, we'll give you a book, my way of saying thank you is, no, I want to buy your book. Um, and then thegameofwork.com. Thank you very much. You guys nice. are... You guys are still you guys are still living and breathing and and doing work. great work, aren't you?
1: Yeah, we uh, you know we're obviously um, anybody watching this video knows that I'm not your age. Um, but we've been we've been richly blessed in our life we have nine grandchildren, and uh, even though I broke my femur in October, I still managed to heal up enough to get thirty five ski days this year. So we have, we have other things other than the business. Um, but if anybody has a question or wants to challenge uh, what we've done, they can reach me my email address and my initials, cac at gameofwork.com.
0: You can also leave a message on the website, thegameofwork.com, because you know why? That's how I reached out to you. And I got a response back within, <laughs> I think,
1: 24 hours. Well, and the other thing is, well, we try to be timely. That's one of one of the principles that Ken Krogh teaches inside sales. Um, the other thing, let me just leave another freebie because fortunately, uh, we have been blessed. Um, there is an executive summary of the game of work for somebody who might not want to invest, uh, and you can get a copy of that by leaving a message on the uh, website as well.
0: That's very kind and generous, sir. This will be the only disagreement I have with you. Get the book. <laughs> no executive summary. You have to read the book. No, but that, no, I think that's great. Uh, this has been phenomenal. And again, I hope we get to do it again. But this has been an honor. Uh, thank you for for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for reaching out. Thank you for giving us this platform. And and we look forward to uh, to doing some more stuff, if you wish.
0: are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Chuck Kudroth, thank you very much. By the way, the one book we didn't mention was The Four Laws of Financial Prosperity. It's a great book for anyone struggling to get ahead financially. I'd also give it to your recent college grad, And even if you're on Firm Financial Footing, it's still an easy and enjoyable read with a sticky message. Again, the book is The Four Laws of Financial Prosperity by Chuck Coonrod. Next week, we have Charles Rosati, the CEO and outsider who ran the IRS for five years. I can't wait for you to hear that conversation. We had a great chat a couple of weeks ago. I'm Mark Gandhi. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.